Take a network break. We're safely clear of pumpkin spice season, so you can enjoy a virtual donut with a regular old coffee. This week, we got new products from Glueware, Aviatrix, and XPE, new partner specializations from Cisco, some financial results, and a Star Wars edition of Space Networking. We're sponsored today by Nokia and its data center fabric for network automation and orchestration. Nokia's data center fabric is designed for day zero design, day one deployment, and operations for day two and beyond. You can find out more at nokia.ly slash dc-fabric and listen to Heavy Networking episode 653 to get details and hear customer use cases. Stay tuned to us for the news. We have a sponsored TechBytes conversation with Juniper Networks about secure access service edge or SASE and how SASE isn't just a product. It's kind of a rethinking of your network and security architecture and operations. Uh, and did you know that Packet Pushers is on YouTube? We've got a dedicated channel full of learning resources, including courses on Ansible for networking, Python basics, learning BGP with Russ White, Kubernetes for network engineers, and more. Just search Packet Pushers on YouTube to see our playlists and standalone videos. And we'll also throw a link in the show notes to this podcast with a subscription link if you're interested. Yeah, there's lots of things happening over on the, the YouTube channel. We did have a membership site that we uh, closed down, so all that content has been moved into the YouTube channel, and we're continuing to pay creators to put content up there. And if there's something that you'd like to see up there, such as learning BGP with Russ White, you know, send us a send us some follow-up at packetpush.net slash FU, and we'll see if we can make that happen and whether it's worth our while to do so. It's all free. It's just something that we do to contribute back to the community. Um, and if you're into watching videos, and some people are, I'm not so much, but, you know, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, check it out. All right, let's dive into the news. Uh, Glueware, they make network automation software, has launched version five of its platform. New features include topology maps and API modeling. The topology maps provide network diagrams and documentation. They're created using Glueware's discovery and config monitoring tools. So you can sort of see what devices are on the network, how they're connected to other devices. Uh, it's pretty much a basic feature, but one that's been absent from the portfolio and Glueware has now rectified that. Yeah, that topology thing is something we've seen in a lot of other tools, especially the automation engines, because they abstract a model and then they can render the model as a topology map. Uh, you know, they know where the connections are, they know what the devices are, they know what their configurations are. And so did feel like a little bit of a gap, but I think Glueware had much more focused on the uh, remote process automation or the, the automation functionality that it had. And so this feels like something that as the product matures, which has been around for a long time now, um, is, is something necessary, but there's quite a few other features in there. Yeah, other, uh, the other thing they were really talking about is uh, API modeling. So Glueware is basically creating API-level integrations with third-party platforms. So out of the gate, it's supporting Meraki, meaning you can point the Meraki controller at Glueware, and then Glueware will ingest data about all the APs uh, behind the Meraki into its system for things like config monitoring, config management, and OS upgrades. Uh, Meraki's the first one out of the gate. The company's going to roll out additional API integrations over time. Uh, in the briefing I got, it sounds like they're going to focus on the Cisco portfolio first and then expand from there. Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. We've always seen Cisco have lots of small business units all doing a thing and unifying them together. So if you're an operation with some Meraki and then you've got some campus, you know, campus LAN, some campus Wi-Fi, and now you've got some, you know, some SD-WAN and some routers. How do you bring all that together into a single management tool? That's not something Cisco's historically done very well uh, because each business unit sits in isolation of the others. And so this feels like a really good focus for them. And this idea of modeling the API, which is saying we can take the API and then render it into Glueware's internal model, means that it can be repeated for others. Now, yes, of course, you can do all this with Ansible and Python and yeah, artisanally roll the code. But I think many organizations would be better served buying a tool like Glueware for this. So somebody else does the work and you get to consume it and your coding time is actually spent doing useful things on top of Glueware because they talked about also developing their northbound API as well, service connectors, I believe. Right, yeah, similar thing, service connectors, they're, they're pre-building pre northbound API uh, integrations for products like ServiceNow. So if you want to tie, uh, say, an OS upgrade into a ServiceNow ticket, um, uh, Glueware can kick off uh, that process, mm. but it's also being documented in ServiceNow to sort of fit with whatever workflow you've got going. Yeah, and that saves a lot of work. In the past, somebody had to do Ansible or Python or Terraform or whatever, right. you know, pull from Glueware and then push it into ServiceNow and vice versa. So, do, you know, do, if you have a ticket raised on ServiceNow, do you want Glueware to go and get the config for you, you know, and, and show it or something like that? And this sort of automate, when somebody else does it for you, that's actually useful. 
uh, you know, they're doing the hard work of defining the API and you just have to consume it. You may still have to write code to stitch it together or get the last 20%. You know, I think the 80-20 rule applies to a lot of this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, picking these up. And then Glueware also has a history of picking somewhere to start with, with a feature and then rolling out more and more over time. They do a lot of testing of devices and stuff. So, Yeah, and I just want to make sure it's clear that the, the, the sort of base Glueware portfolio and the key um, modules, things like configuration monitoring, configuration management, config drift, uh, audit, device discovery, OS upgrade, that uh, works across, I think, they've got like 40 uh, vendor OSs under their stable, so they've been doing this for a while. Uh, that's sort of the core thing. These are the things we've talked about now, the, uh, the API modeling with Meraki, that's an, an addition to all those other capabilities. I will also say that I think Glueware, among the network automation platforms we tend to talk about, they have the biggest focus on brownfield environments. Yeah. Um, yep. they're, they're not promising the moon, but they'll help you get your brownfield kind of in shape and ready for a more NetOps-like environment. Yeah. So if you've got a lot of CLI, for example, maybe you've got a lot of legacy kit. And even if you've got something with it, you can actually build a module to handle something that's completely your own. And Glueware will then be able to include that. So if you've got some weird brand of equipment from your legendary network, you know, <laughs> type of thing. Right. You know, yes. <laughs> and you want to talk to, a, I don't know, a, you know, some sort of modem rack from, from 30 years ago, you can write a module for it and it will work and you can build your own. If, if, you, that's, if it's important to you, that's the sort of thing that you could do. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Link in the show notes if you want to find out more about all the new features in Glueware 5, we will move on. Uh, Aviatrix, they provide software-based multi-cloud networking. They've announced a new feature called Cost IQ. It's designed to help customers understand which IT departments and lines of business are using cloud networking so you can better allocate your chargebacks or at least your showbacks to say, hey, department's using X amount of our networking resources. Here's what that spend would look like. You can almost hear the howls, can't you? Customers going, how do I, <laughs> how do I know what's being built in the cloud? I think controlling cloud costs is a, is a bigger issue than we really know, because customers mm-hmm. are never confident that they understand how much they're spending, and there's a real business risk that the budget just overruns, and like and and potentially to the detriment of the entire company. We've seen a few stories. It doesn't happen much, but you know that's the problem that you have. And so, uh, and then of course everybody wants to claim that y- you've saved the company money. You know, you did something today. Sure. You, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yes. Uh, yes. That's a, that's always a good thing to get noticed, especially around resume time. I would recommend holding that until your annual review comes around, and then start cutting costs right around that time because then you'll get noticed. Otherwise, people forget. Just remember that. Um, but I've always sort of figured that the cloud is you know, worthwhile, if you want speed and low barrier to entry and, you know, ease of getting things stood up, then you're just going to pay a lot more. And that obviously leads to the question of how do I justify this cost? Now, Aviatrix builds on other people's clouds. So it has to add value. It's basically using other people's networks and Mm -hmm. doing some orchestration stuff on them. So if you're going to do that, you have to show some sort of value. And being able to configure them is definitely a value. Stitch them all together, you know, bring together IXPs and overlays and all that sort of stuff. But Really, this is the feature to say, hang on, I can bring all of your services together and charge them back. I can say, this much was used by that developer, this much was used by that team, this much was done by that team. You've got a problem. You're overspending. Your budget allocation is 20 times everybody else. And if that's a business unit that's, you know, just doing scut work, then you've got a problem sort of thing. And that's the challenge. Yeah, and I want to be clear that uh, this cost IQ is not uh, looking at your entire cloud spend. It's a just focused on what it's yeah. costing you to run Aviatrix, but Aviatrix is able to uh, break it out more fine grain so that you can see, okay, uh, devs are using this percentage of our networking capability. Um, you know, the web team is using this percentage and so on, so that you can get a better sense of how much each for that chargeback or that showback element mm. to say, look, this is what you're spending. We're able to track it. You know, this is what you need to kick back to the IT team. Yeah, because there's nothing worse than sitting there looking at this monstrous bill for an AWS Net Gateway. In saying, well, who used it? <laughs> right, uh, something like a, a firewall. It's like, yeah. uh, how do I parse out those costs? And Aviatrix using, you know, some tagging and, and a, a group accounts that that you already have in your cloud can monitor the traffic and say, okay, we can attribute this percentage of yeah. this firewall consumption to that group. Because that's incredibly difficult without some sort of tooling. And yes, you know, uh, so yeah, valuable, but it it still feels. You know, this this idea of what Aviatrix is trying to solve still feels niche to me. I don't know how many companies are out there in the cloud um, and at this level of maturity that they've actually deployed across multiple clouds and they're trying to stitch them together in some way into a coherent operating model. I, there certainly uh-huh. are companies doing it, don't get me wrong. I just wonder how big that market is at this point in time. Right. 
Uh, one last thing on uh, cost IQ, it can also monitor capacity requirements of the underlying resource uh, for, say, a firewall or a switch um, to say, oh, you know, you when you initially provisioned this instance, you assumed a lot of traffic was going to be pushed through it, so you bought the biggest instance. Uh, the traffic we're seeing looks like you could probably go down a size and save a little money, so there's that uh, cost savings element you can bring back to your boss at review time. Mm. Always helpful. Remember, only Always at helpful. review time. Don't worry about it for the rest of the year. No one's going to remember if you save money in January and your reviews in October, right? Keep your powder dry. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, HPE has announced new ProLiant Gen 11 servers. HPE is positioning the servers for AI, analytics, graphics, processing, ML, and cloud-native applications. Supported processors include AMD Epic, Intel Xeon, and Ampere Ultra and Ampere Ultra Max. Yeah, really the only thing I wanted to, that caught my eye here, Drew, was that they're only shipping servers currently with fourth-generation AMD Epics and uh, the servers with Ampere processors. Intel's Mm -hmm. processors are missing here. And my guess here is that Intel Sapphire Lake, which is the next generation of Xeons that are supposed to ship, aren't shipping now. They were supposed to ship earlier this year. They're not going to ship until mid-2023. It's a sign that Intel's definitely struggling. We've talked about this before. You know, Pat Gelsinger came in, got paid $180 million to come on board and to try and turn the company around. And that's really not happening. There's no uh, redemption story coming through yet. And it would seem to me that HPE has basically been forced to say, we've got these servers, they're ready to go. We've got no Intel CPUs. We're going to ship them anyway and go with the story and get them out in front of customers. And when your CPUs are ready, Intel will ship them, which is, I think is a huge turnaround in service space. It really is, and I think definitely kind of a loss for Intel for you know a new generation of servers from a big provider to be going out with AMD out of the gate mm. and not Intel. Yeah, that that stings a little, I'm sure. But if you've got you know if you're HPE and you've built all this infrastructure, done all these designs, validated them, tested them, you know you you don't want to wait another what is it <laughs> six or seven months? Maybe maybe right. maybe Intel right. fluffs it again and it takes longer. Maybe it comes sooner, but you don't want to be sitting there and saying, "Well, we can't take them out." You know, you've got hundreds of millions of dollars worth of stock sitting there, you know, yes. and research and development and testing and validation. You want to get out there and get this in front of customers. And and I was also thinking that if you're a GreenLake customer, do you actually know what CPU is in there? Do you care? I mean, the whole idea is that you shouldn't. No. Really. Yeah. Yeah. So AMD's and AMD's financial results reflects this because they had a very poor quarter around desktop CPUs. Uh, their sales are down substantially, but uh, their sales into the data center were up by something like 30 to 40%. And the analysts are very impressed with that because that's where the profit margin is. So um, yeah. it's good for AMD and Intel's just having a bad week, I think. Yeah. A couple other points I wanted to call out. Uh, as you mentioned, GreenLake, these servers will be available under a GreenLake subscription model, which means you get the hardware, but you only actually pay for the capacity you use. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also noticed that HPE is really touting component security. So they mentioned it's got TPM for secure boot. It's got new authentication capabilities in its ILO management system, and it's got supply chain security that now extends to overseas manufacturers. So Intel really signaling, hey, we're doing everything we can to make sure that malicious uh Components or software are not getting into the (laughs) server before we ship it to you. Well, there's a dual-edged sword, that. On one hand, the supply chain security. So you know that the server you're getting is the server you purchased. There's no people in the middle dropping in dodgy stuff. Remember that false claim (laughs) by... I think it was Bloomberg or Business Insider about the... Right, about baseband controllers. Yeah, yeah, and all that sort of stuff. And that sort of... I think Uh that has in net responses, it's good. The downside, of course, is that these servers can't be repaired. So if anything inside the box needs repair in any way, if you want to fix it, not that you can repair much, you know, the the idea of self-repairing a server is pretty pretty unlikely, but uh, because all of these chips have a root of trust inside, if you try to use a third-party chip, you can't, they won't work. They won't have the appropriate crypto key in the silicon. And that means that third-party repair is not possible or will is not possible. And same thing we see with Apple iPhones, same thing. But it also means that if anybody tries to take these motherboards out and put them into some other server, that can't happen. So dual-edged sword, if that makes sense, and also prevents the grey market. So if you used to mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. buy servers in Australia and ship them to the US because you got a better deal down there and that was worth your while doing, if you start doing that, HP is going to know because each server gets tagged and gets reported up to the central office and, you know, they'll take steps to make sure that doesn't stand outside of their go-to-market model. So it's interesting that that mix is coming up and on the whole, probably good. 
because when you get something that's not the quality or has been sub substituted by someone in the in the middlemen, you know, can you really trust all the people in the middlemen? So this goes some way towards uh, towards that. Sure, and I my assumption is that if you're a GreenLake customer, you're probably not trying to, you know, play that arbitrage game of buying the cheapest server. You're no. happy with what you're getting for HP. You just want that ease of use yeah. operational model. And if they're throwing in extra security, that's great. Yeah. Well, you also don't want people opening up the servers and dropping in, you know, at some point in the future will be, you know, if <laughs> right. you put in a non-approved right. hard drive, it won't work. That's where we're right. headed, right? Um, that's probably where we're headed. Probably yeah. where we're headed. And at the end of the day, a root of trust doesn't cost a whole lot. It's no, basically it inspecting yeah. your supply chain on a regular basis and putting some extra designs. It's not a whole lot of money, and really they should have been doing it a decade or more. So, yeah. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Nokia. Uh, we're sponsored by Nokia and its data center fabric for network automation and orchestration. Nokia's data center fabric is designed for automation from day zero uh, for design, day one for deployment, and operations for day two and beyond. The scalable fabric helps network teams keep pace with demand for new applications and services. It can reduce risk with a digital sandbox. You can test changes against your actual network configuration and get insights into visibility and performance with deep telemetry. The fabric comes together through Nokia's SR Linux Network OS, the intent-based fabric services system platform, a digital sandbox, the NetOps development kit or NDK, and more. You can get all the details about this at nokia.ly slash dc-fabric. That's nokia.ly slash dc-fabric. And if you want even more details, check out Heavy Networking episode 653, where we talk with Nokia about how it all comes together and also hear about how customers are using the data center fabric in production. So nokia.ly slash dc-fabric and Heavy Networking episode 653. We thank Nokia for being a sponsor. We do. They're good. Enjoy talking to them and thinking about things a little differently. They do have a bit of a unique way of approaching things, which I, I'm interested in seeing. I think it is worth your time listening just to figure out, you know, if you're looking for at a data center refresh at data center automation, then this is a way to get some of your options on the table. Mm, yep. Uh, back to the news. Cisco has announced six new specializations for partners and resellers, which Cisco says are tied to customer priorities and represent, quote, fast-growing market opportunities. The specializations include secure access service edge, hybrid work, hybrid cloud networking, and hybrid cloud compute. Yeah, the six new specializations doesn't really change the way Cisco goes to market. We've seen different specializations for partners to get on. Um, it originally started as a way for small partners to be competitive against big partners back when I was a reseller. And, you know, there was like the the, the big resellers who had all of the trained people and the, all of the features and all this stuff. And then if you were an up and coming and wanting to break into the industry, you couldn't. So Cisco brought on these specializations to say, well, you can be a, a switching specialist and we'll give you extra discount in the switching only. And that sort of worked out okay. Um, but I think the model's been evolving over time. And I think there's a few different ways to look at this. And I wanted to cover this because I think it's important for infrastructure professionals to understand what Cisco partners in this idea of specializations and levels means. So Bear with me for a little bit. One way is to mm -hmm. look at Cisco partners is that they have a lot of skilled and trained people who can offer you products, advice on products, perform deployment, and advise you on the right features that are relevant to a particular customer's needs. Therefore, customers should be looking for proof that the reseller that they do business with has invested in training and retaining staff around those skill sets that they uh, want, right? And so in mm -hmm. return, partners who have specific specializations will then get supported by Cisco when in a customer deal with discounts and other incentives. You know, they might be able to get extra credit if they're into their particular stock. Uh, resellers have a lot of problems with credit and cash flow. And so if you get into a customer deal, you get some extra discounts, you can compete with the big players who have all the specializations. And in theory, customers get to choose the best partner and potentially even multiple partners to provide Cisco products and services. And so you might have one partner for SD-WAN, one for multi-cloud, and another one for your data center and so forth, right? Does that mm -hmm. sound reasonable? I mean, that's the value-add part of a value-added reseller. That's right, yeah. But another way to look at it is that all Cisco partners are selling all the same thing to the same people. And it's very confusing to be in a situation when all of these resellers fight to get your business and everybody's got a different price much. And you can be dealing with one reseller who, who provides all of everything, a big, huge reseller, but you know, there's this other one over here and it's 10% cheaper and you don't understand why suddenly that one's cheaper or, you know, and then you get into deals where there's three resellers all claiming that you're their account. And in the end, Cisco gets to crown partners as the best fit. And it often comes down to not best fit. It comes down to who got in the door first, who registered the deal with Cisco first, or who Cisco thinks is the most, the, the one they like the best, you know, who do they like? 
um, mm-hmm. more often than not. So th- there's a lot of room here for people to be confused about how they engage with Cisco when the partners are all competing. Now, in theory, having competing partners is good for the customer because they're all offering you know different things. But at the end of the day, there's not a lot of competition because Cisco restricts what they can do. They're all selling the same thing to the same solution. So it's a bit right. of a, it can get very confusing if that makes sense. It's a bit like standing in a car yard and having three sales reps from three different car yards trying to sell you the same car. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Anyway, or the other way to look at this, which is a bit more cynical, is to look at Cisco partners that have to jump through hoops to be able to sell Cisco products. And because those products are hard to use and hard to install, they require special training and dedicated people to make that happening. And it's not possible to be able to understand what Cisco products do. And this creates a situation where Cisco's products tend towards complexity and over-featuring and not a lot of customer focus, not a lot of operational focus. And this means that Cisco is very vulnerable to customers who say, I just want something simple and that does the job. And you end up having to have these Cisco partners do the translation for you. Um, and those three different things that I talked about here are actually part of the problem of Cisco's go-to-market. Cisco's committed to using partners. And in my view, that's because the partner channel is cheaper for them for them to go direct, right? They've tried uh-huh, going uh-huh. direct and found out that it's probably cheaper to have partners and to do that. But uh, I think the, the message that I'd like to sort of you come away with here is customers need to be smart about buying. You have to understand purchasing. And Cisco is going to force you to deal with some sort of middleman here, we, you know, whichever reseller you choose, and behind the reseller is the distributor, and then behind the distributor is Cisco. And at the end of the day, you need to understand that pipeline to be successful with Cisco. So if you're not looking at these specializations, these new ones that Cisco brought out, and they're all in the cloud space, you do need to understand them because when you engage them, they impact the process of your buying. Yeah. So, and this, uh, you know, highlights attention within Cisco. I think we brought up back, uh, back in June with Cisco Live when Cisco came out swinging heavily for the Meraciization of sort of the entire company and that we know our products can be complicated and hard to use for you, the customer. We're trying to make it simpler, but simpler products probably also bite into that reseller market. So there is this existing tension mm-hmm. within the company itself around partners versus letting customers have an easier experience with the product. So yeah, yeah you, you do need to be it's careful. It's very difficult for partners to make a profit. Professional services is super difficult to make profit around. <laughs> and these specializations, sometimes you look at it and you think, oh, it's just a way to par- shut the partners up and stop them from complaining. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And, uh, right. And, and in other cases, there's actually a good argument. You know, a lot of these products are complicated. But a lot of them are overly complicated or pointlessly complicated, as I think. And that's something that Cisco does suffer from. It tries to embrace, you know, customers say, I want a wingle. You know, I want this to have a, an overhead chrome tailpipe with dice hanging from the from the lights. And they'll add right. that feature, right? And I think increasingly right. Cisco has gotten better at refusing to add features, but I don't think it's far enough yet. They're still, the products are still overly complicated and not, not, simplified for for wide use so perhaps this is a reflection of that who knows pick you pick you one of those yeah. three and the specializations that Cisco announced including things like secure access surface Azure sassy and hybrid cloud networking these are complex things complex products and in Cisco's case particularly with sassy they don't really have an integrated sassy solution yet you're stitching together a whole bunch of different things to make anything look like sassy work yeah. if you're sticking inside the Cisco portfolio so yeah if you were going to get your sassy from Cisco you yeah. probably would want a partner to help you put it yeah, together. Yeah, if you're working across multiple Cisco business units, you definitely need skills. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, as always, link in the show notes if you want to read more. We'll move on to some financial results. Uh, first, Fortinet. They reported results for their third quarter 2022, posted revenues of $1.15 billion, up 32% year over year. Net income was $231 million, also up over last year. Uh, revenue from products was up almost 40% to $468 million. Service revenue was $68 million, up 28%. Uh, so all the numbers were up, but uh, Wall Street <laughs> dinged Fortinet anyway. <laughs> yeah, down 14%, which is a bit, seems a bit uh, distressing because they didn't miss by much. What they actually said was that the fourth quarter billings would be down very slightly. Like estimates were $1.47 billion, and they were saying $1.66 billion to $1.72 billion. So, you know, it's not like they're going to miss by, you know, it's only 20 to 40 million. Like it doesn't sound like much, but I guess it, it must be super frustrating to put in a quarter like that yeah. and then have Wall Street knock the stock price down 14% because you are mm. 200 million off your projected revenue for the next quarter. Like, yeah. Come on. What, I think there was a wider market issue in that a lot of other security stocks have been sold off. And I think the mm-hmm. expectation was that 40 net would come in at a higher. So it'd come in above 
previous billings forecasts and mm-hmm. they would still have this growth. I mean, at the end of the day, they've had this enormous growth over the the last, you know, whatever's they've had like 30, 20, 30, 40% growth quarter over quarter, year over year. And people were sort of expecting them to go again, right? Well, they haven't. So maybe some people are saying, all right, we'll, we'll take our profits and go and put them in the bank as the market, as the recession, you know, drags on. But by and large, a lot of the security stocks did get sold off. So we're seeing Palo Alto down 7%, CrowdStrike down 2 and Z Scaler off by 4% at the same time. So uh, maybe some part of the 40 net is the disappointment that they didn't over over deliver. And some part of it would be just the generic background in the industry that, you know, stocks are deflating. Not that 40 nets down much, like they were peaked at sort of $70 sometime in the last year or so, and now they're down to 45. Mm-hmm. So they haven't fallen like Cloudflare or Facebook or any of the other stocks. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I want to clarify that we aren't technically in a recession, but there is a lot, some in some corners a, a creeping economic uncertainty. So I think that Wall Street has jitters, and we're seeing that in yeah. how they're reacting to results. Yeah, like or Cisco's forecasts. down 23% for the year, Fortinet's down 28% for the year in the last calendar year. So not a huge deviation there. Uh, moving on to Arista, who also announced Q3 financial results for the quarter. The company had revenues of $1.17 billion, up 11.9% year over year, and almost 60% compared to the previous quarter. The company said Q3 revenue was a record. They also posted net income of $354 million. Yeah, blew the wheels off, uh, <laughs> really. Uh, this was completely unexpected. Uh, they out-executed significantly over previous ones. Uh, they're talking here up 68% year over year, so... This quarter over last year, they're up 70%. Now, against the backdrop of supply chain problems, which we've seen, and I'm sure if you're a Rista customer in the enterprise, you didn't get your product, you're going to be a little peeved. Uh, but they're saying that the Cloud Titan vertical um, was particularly the one. That is, they were able to increase 60 some, 68% or 60% in the Cloud Titans. So they've been shipping a lot of gear to Microsoft, Google, and Facebook is the guess as far as I can tell. Uh, and the gross margins are down. Obviously, the pricing in those markets is much tighter, so they lost a bit of margin quarter over quarter, but still, 57% growth rate uh, is just excellent supply chain execution, so they're not sitting on a backlog of orders. Now, what's going to happen next quarter, Drew, is the investors are going to say, how are you diversifying away? What if the cloud titans turn against you? And so they're going to have a share price hit in the next next two one or two quarters when that that doesn't keep going. So, you know, you, you take your chances. That's right. Um, on that cloud titan uh, element, I looked at the analyst call and uh, they Arista specifically called out Microsoft and Meta. Mm. Um, they were Arista's top revenue drivers, uh, followed by the enterprise. The company anticipates that 45% of its total 2022 revenue will end up coming from cloud titans. So yeah, mm. a lot of eggs in that one basket, uh, which if it's going good, that's a lot of eggs. If it's not so good, then you're in trouble. Yeah. And I think that'll be a topic going forward because uh, part of the discussion on the analyst call was they think that some of the cloud, like the largest cloud, like Microsoft, Meta and so forth, are actually holding a, a forward ordering inventory into warehouses for com- upcoming builds. And this may mm. be a one-off quarter. They're not entirely sure because they don't talk about it very much. They don't, right. you know, Arista doesn't get full insight into what their products are being used for. And, and understand what the demand cycle would be so they can't say whether they're – and if that happens, then suddenly orders could drop off a cliff. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and on the supply chain front, uh, Arista got several questions about that, and they said they're not expecting any real improvements for another year. Uh, so uh, This is it. Yeah, it this looks is like as good as it gets, is- <laughs> which is pretty good, by the way. You know, uh, Arista's market cap is now $38 billion. Uh, so you can take that as you will. Um, they're doing a really good job of executing on core networking activities, uh, and and I continue to abide by that. The idea that Arista is still doing Cisco better than Cisco, and it shows. All right, we'll wrap up with uh, some space networking. Russia has warned the United Nations that if commercial satellites, uh, if used to support war efforts in Ukraine, could be considered military targets. That's according to a story in the Register. A deputy director in Russia's foreign ministry said at the UN in late October that, quote, quasi-civilian infrastructure may become a legitimate target for retaliation, end quote. Uh, I don't think so, Drew. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's just a little bluster. Yeah, um, I think... What we see from Russia in the Ukraine war, a lot of the times is they say outrageous things and then we all get a bit scared about it and then we wait patiently to see if they're going to do anything about it and they don't. Um, I think 
the Russian authorities like to threaten everybody and anything. They've been threatening, you know, nuclear war. Uh, for example, the detail, there's a grain deal where uh, ships are moving grain from Odessa, which is a Ukrainian sea town, under a deal brokered by Turkey and the UN. And per mm-hmm. Putin recently made an announcement that Russia is cancelling that deal. And Turkey said to Russia, no, you're not. We brokered the deal. You promised. And if you pull out, we're going to block the, block the Bosphorus Straits. Now, Russia's 100% dependent on, or significantly dependent on the Bosphorus Straits to get mm-hmm. access to markets for all this other stuff. So they had to... Uh, backtrack and then say he would honor the deal. So what we see is this right. continuous cycle of the Russian institutions making threats, and when people push back, they go, "Oh yeah." Uh, so I, I don't think that they're actually in a position. Yes, Russia has a successful space space program, and it's not clear that at this time they actually have the resources to put tools into space that could actually mount an attack. They might, but you know, it might be a very limited attack. We've seen in the war in Ukraine that Russia's not as competent as everybody believed in general. They don't have a massive thing. Um, Well, I will say that in 2021, both Russia and China successfully tested missile launches from Earth that knocked their own satellites out of orbit. They each shot down one of their own satellites, um, ostensibly because it was a satellite they were decommissioning, but it was also a way to say, see what we can do. We we can shoot down a satellite. So they might have the capability, but do they have a lot of them? So how many satellites can you take out? So that's what we've seen in the Ukraine war is that, yes, Russia has... Uh, you know, the the T-90, which is a very modern, very up-to-date main battle tank. But they only have about 50 of them, whereas you need hundreds <laughs> to conduct a land war, you know, maybe right. seven or 800, and the resources to fuel them and, to, you know, all the other stuff, the, the logistics, and they haven't been able to do that. So I think that, and there's also sort of an unwritten agreement about Ukraine and Russia that um, it'll only happen in Ukraine. So as long as the war's inside Ukraine, each, uh-huh. you know, NATO versus Russia, like there's no escalation as long as it's there. I think yes. if Russia went to space and tried to do something there, you would see yes. a comprehensive response from NATO. And Russia is um, highly defended on its GLONASS satnav. So it's been launching its own satnav network. It's mm-hmm. called GLONASS. So there's a link there. Um, if I suspect that if they did actually do anything, then there would be a response. And if we took out their you know, is space outside of Ukraine, if if they took action outside of the sphere of the war in the Ukraine, would NATO then respond and start taking down Russian satellites? That's the question. And the answer there is almost certainly yes, because then they would be free to act because Russia, out, you know, took its aggression sure. outside. And sure. Yeah. So we don't see any American or British or NATO troops inside of Ukraine. That's why. Right. Mm. Yeah, my take is this may have been sort of a veiled threat to private companies like Starlink, uh, whose equipment and satellites have been used in Ukraine fairly successfully to help Ukraine prosecute uh, Mm. the war and and push back on Russia's invasion. So that may be part of this, just a little warning to uh, private companies like you might get into some things you didn't really plan on getting into here. Um, The other thing is, I think if you're going to try to disrupt satellite communications, there's other ways to do it. You can attack you know, ground stations, you can try to DDoS against the internet capability. So yeah. shooting down satellites, particularly Starlink satellites, where you'd have to take out a whole lot of them to make any them, real yeah. difference. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, this does just seem like saber rattling, I think. Yeah, it really does. I think the the flip side here is that a lot of the Russians like to make threats. They've been very successful with them all over the world, you know, like in Syria and Afghanistan, they make threats. Mm-hmm do a little mm-hmm. bit to sort of, you know, rattle the saber is the old political term that they used to do. But if anybody stands up to them, they go, oh, no, 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 you caught me out. I can't do that. And that's what we're seeing a lot of. And like, for example, when the war started, there was going to be a big cyber war and it was going to break out around the world. Well, Russia is very active in cyber war inside of Ukraine, but I think there's been some sort of backroom deal to say, if you take it out worldwide, then we can attack you back in Russia. And we haven't seen right. a lot of Russian activity we, outside of that space, so there hasn't been. It's true. It's it's been pretty highly contained, surprisingly. Yeah, yeah I think there's been some. You know, like, sure, okay, we're going to do this, and as long as it's there, NATO won't get involved. But as soon as you go outside of that, so I think it's okay. That's not to say it won't. There's plenty of room for an idiot to come in and do something outside of the command <laughs> chain, or you know, for sure. a mistake to happen. But generally, I'm okay. I don't think Russia has. Much of a cap- they have the capability, but do they have fifty satellite killers to take out enough satellites to make an impact? I don't think so. Right. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps up the news portion. Uh, again, all the links in the show notes if you want to go read the stories for yourself. Uh, stay tuned for our sponsored conversation with Juniper Networks. We'll be talking about Sassy. That's coming right up. 
Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we'll be investigating secure access service edge or SASE, including the current state of the market and how SASE is evolving. We'll also look at how sponsor Juniper Networks is moving into the SASE space. Our guest is Kate Adams, Senior Director of Security Product Marketing at Juniper Networks. Uh, Kate, welcome to the podcast. There's a lot of interest in SASE. What is driving this uh, sort of explosion in this space? Hey, Drew. Yeah, SASE is uh, not only a big buzzword, but a big initiative for a lot of organizations. And what we've seen is, you know, at, with the pandemic and the evolution of just architectures in general uh, for networks, you know, we started with, you know, distributing our data centers, moving to cloud. And now there are lots of organizations who use a number of both private clouds and public clouds. And we saw the same uh, for the workforce people working from everywhere and expecting mm -hmm. fast, reliable, and secure access wherever they are in the world, whether they are in the branch office, they're at home, they're on a beach. I know I myself have worked <laughs> from a vacation, right? Wherever that might be, it just makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> we saw that even before the pandemic, but we did, the, pandemic, yeah. the pandemic exacerbated that and you know we saw that move to a cloud delivered both networking and security architecture for the workforce just take off so you're saying essentially the sort of old model of shunt all my traffic to this sort of one place in you know the corporate data center or a cluster of security appliances doesn't really work anymore when my apps could be all over the place my users are all over the place yeah i mean it does it still works there's still lots of enterprises who use that model, that remote access model where, you know, latency is okay, but more and more the users expect a great experience and adding latency where you have to do that. You have to backhaul traffic to, you know, wherever in the world, all those appliances sit is less and less acceptable. I mean, we're in a, we're yeah. in a world now where, I mean, if I'm on my phone, right. I, a second of latency while a web page loads, unacceptable right like <laughs> yeah i'm gone there's research that shows 150 milliseconds is what humans don't notice anything less than that but and oh, yeah. web pages have to load in half a second to be viable to be successful i i think what you're also alluding to there is we used to talk about the trombone down through the data center and back out mm -hmm. but what we're also seeing is the rapid adoption of off-prem SaaS services or off-prem clouds and a lot of the services that people are accessing are actually on the internet or directly accessible quickly by the internet email and, you know, in, in cloud host service being the classic one. I think what we're seeing there is that workers are coming from home more often than not. You know, you could argue two or three days a week on average. But I think it's also the fact that a lot of the services are just on the Internet. Why route that traffic back to, you know, trombone it? Just send it directly. So that split tunneling thing that we see a lot is the key. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, but that brings up another point, too, is we, you know, with this rapid architectural transformation, not only with where where apps sit and the use of more and more SaaS applications, um, you know, we see networks becoming increasingly complex. And so, you know, it, it is no surprise that amid an architectural transformation or evolution, whatever you want to call it, right, there's gonna be a lot of chaos in there. And we all know, in the security world, chaos is where attackers love to sit, right? They take advantage of it. Uh -huh. And so, you know, SASE can offer uh, a, a way to, you know, make the security part of that, that architecture, uh, that security sprawl, um, a little less sprawling, right? Because you're concentrating <laughs> the, the services that, you know, uh, enable zero trust for users wherever they are, keep that consistent, keep the the security uh, consistent wherever they are in the world, right? So there's less of a of an opportunity now, for attackers to take advantage. Now, the unique thing here is that Juniper Sassy is very well positioned because of the underlying SD-WAN based on the 128T technology is actually yeah. really well suited to zero trust and to security inspection. So perhaps what we should quickly talk about is where Sassy deviates from SD-WAN and what makes sense about that. Yeah, Sassy is interesting because it, it comprises two, two pieces. One, you touch on SD-WAN. And the other piece is because we love our acronyms in the networking and security space, SSE, which stands for Security Service Edge, um, which is basically all the, all the, the, the technologies that you know, people are used to with an NGFW. Uh, so, you know, firewalling IPS, secure web gateway, um, 
yeah. advanced threat, you know, uh, sandboxing. Exactly. You know, combined, you know. yeah, combined with some of those cloud delivered services like CASB and DLP, combine all those together, stick it in a cloud and deliver yeah. it from the cloud. Um, yeah. That's that's SSE, Security Service Edge. So the, all, the, all the good security components plus SD-WAN, put them together and you've got SASE. Right. Okay. So it, it's, uh, I like to think of it as a kitchen sink of when <laughs> sometimes I just don't often say that, but you know, like if you, if you took a router and then put a, a you know, SD WAN engine in there to do dynamic flow management, and then you added next generation firewalls, and then you added in cloud hosted security services and, you know, all of a sudden you've got a kitchen sink of WAN functionality. And we, we used to talk about branch in a box, but it's kind of in that evolving into that direction. Yeah, it's kind of like branch as a service. Yeah. Or, yeah. Ooh, I should have said that. Branch as a service. That <laughs> I call dibs. B-A-A-S. Yeah. Dibs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess the, the the challenge here is that for some people um, is that networking is not always easy to use. And I think one of the advantages about or one of the differentiators of Juniper SaaS is that operational capability. Oh, you have hit it. Absolutely. Um, you know, I don't know if you've seen any of our ads, but we've been focusing on experience first networking and security for, well, many years mm -hmm. um, in that not only do we want to enable our, you know, our users, the folks who are in the dashboards, you know, in the config, um, we want to enable them to provide great experiences for their users, right? So you don't, they don't get 5,000 help desk tickets every day. Um, you know, saying, why can't I access this application? Why is it so slow? Right. Um, but in addition, we want to make the experience for those guys, for the guys who are in it every day, making the network work, making sure application access is fast, is reliable and is secure. We want to make that experience really good for them, too, because we all know um, and me coming from the security space. If something doesn't if something has a bad experience, if you if it is hard to work with a tool that tool is probably not going to get used very well or at all. Mm. Mm. Okay. So I get the, the SSE element. This is usually, you know, some kind of pop or cloud instance where I've got a bunch of security services that are delivered and I can route traffic, you know, from the nearest location to that pop to get the security inspection. And that's usually from an SD-WAN gateway. But what about remote users who may not be behind an SD-WAN gateway or behind a corporate firewall? Do you have something for them to get them into this SASE service? We do, in fact, yes, have things for folks who are everywhere but the branch. Um, and this is where, and again, another acronym, because we love them, ZTNA, Zero Trust Network Access comes in. So, you know, from the client, whether that's a mobile phone or a laptop, wherever that user may be, I'm home right now. I love being home. I know there are lots of users who are in the same boat, not mm. in the branch. That that Zero Trust Network Access uh client routes traffic to that nearest pop. And what we can do is we actually can uh, route traffic similarly to how it would be routed if that person were in the branch. So this is this includes things like, you know, again, making sure that, you know, the, the traffic is secure, making sure that the person who's trying to access said application has authorized access. They are who they say they are. They're not, yeah. you know, they're So you're they're working with identity management and tools and yeah. The zero trust doesn't just include, you know, who is it and then tracking what they're doing. It's also about integrating with some sort of identity management tool to say that you are allowed or that you have a profile. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, that goes for device, uh, device identity too, right? Identity mm -hmm. is not just per people, but actually what device are you using? What OS is it? Is said device potentially compromised? Is it IoT, right? All of these things go into enforcing zero trust principles for, you know, you, well, mm. really, we, we say we're protecting users and devices, but really we're protecting yeah. access to the data. Uh -huh. Well, I also think of it as avoiding pain over IP. When we used to use AppSec everywhere and, you know, we used to have these VPN clients and all we did was connect and things didn't work. And there was all sorts of problems and getting the IPSEC to be reliable was a problem. But with the advent of SASE and, and this access to tools and direct, you know, breaking out locally and all that sort of stuff, we don't actually need the clients that we used to have. They're very different in terms of modern and they're compatible. So if you're somebody running a legacy IPSEC 
I sometimes I shouldn't say legacy. I like to call old networking legendary networking. You know, back in, the, right? so if there you're are running a lot a legendary, of people who appreciate what you just said, <laughs> you know. But if you're looking at something new, if you put an SD WAN in, you want to solve the remote access problem as part of the WAN because people who are connected on remote, you know, single user from the desktop, from the smartphone type stuff, they need to be connected to the WAN as if whether they're in the branch or on the campus or whatever, that needs to be one thing. You don't want to have one network for remote access and one network for people in the branch, you know, on the other end of a WAN router. Mm -hmm. You want it all to be unified. And you want to say, instead of having IPSEC as a special condition of remote access, but you just want it to see like it's a branch. It just happens to be a one person branch with a laptop. Exactly. It's the branch of one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but that brings up a good point too, is, is, you know, that branch of one and, you know, IPsec and, and how those users, wherever they are, are reaching out to those applications. In a lot of cases, you know, we see admins, you know, the, the actual people implementing this, having to choose between, okay, do I, do I enforce security or do I favor low latency, right? There's there, even yeah. with, with the advent of cloud delivered services and SASE, there's still this balance that a lot of, you know, a lot of admins have to strike between performance or security. And that's one of the things that in our, in our quest to provide the best user and end user experience is we don't believe that that has to be a choice, right? Mm. Yeah, access? I think that's great because it yeah. tends to be that if something gets in the way of my productivity or my speed of access, I will find a way around it. Exactly, that, exactly. <laughs> Usable security, but also low latency and, yeah. you know, high performance regardless. And, you know, extending that over to not just SASE, but on the experience side, making it so that, you know, the the admins experience when they are deploying these these services for their their users for their branches of one right they're they're also not having to go into multiple different dashboards and management systems to configure all of these pieces right so there's this concept of okay yes we have sassy but we also see you know sassy being used in a lot of ways that don't provide low latency plus security don't provide that balance and i think one of the ways in which we are providing additional value, not just for, you know, the SASE transformation, but really transformation of the entire network is making it so that there isn't, there, there aren't multiple dashboards for multiple different architectures, right? If you've got, you know, your branch locations and you want to provide security in a legendary way, Greg, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? But you're also providing, um, you know, uh, uh, access and secure services to remote workers. Why in the same way as if it was the WAN, exactly. which just which makes why it so operationally simple because all of yeah. your security policies that you're applying to the people in the branch just get applied to the remote access users. Exactly. Or, at the very least, I mean, you could have very, the, the amazing thing about SD-WAN is because it has a software engine in it, right? You can say, mm-hmm. I want to have this generic policy. And if you're a remote access user, you can say, well, oh, the, these people are a branch that, you know, a one person branch, you know, uh, branch in a laptop, if you like. And <laughs> they get a policy that's attached to them, which might be more draconian than being in a branch because you've got other security controls, people looking over the shoulders, access to a building, there's a building control system in there. And so it just, it, it's administratively so much easier than trying to have two different systems with radically different technologies and different policy frameworks. And I mean, really right at the end of the day, shouldn't the policy just follow the user wherever they go? Hmm. So I think this leads us into another discussion about SASE and that we see the market kind of sort of, uh, I guess, bifurcating into what they're calling full stack and sort of an integrated SASE, SASE where full stack is you're getting the networking and the security from mm-hmm. one vendor as opposed to, you know, I've got, I'm getting SD-WAN from vendor A and I'm getting the cloud delivered security from vendor B. It looks like Juniper is going down this full stack path in part because of that operational experience where I'm unifying the security and the networking in one place. Yeah. I mean, we see a lot of organizations wanting to consolidate their SASE vendors. I mean, let's take maybe like a year to 18 months ago, you know, we, we've been seeing organizations choose a vendor for SD-WAN, choose a vendor for CASB, choose a vendor for firewalls of service, right. choose a separate vendor even for more traditional security architecture at the edge. And so what we said is, you know, I know we know people are going to want to consolidate because let's just face it, dealing with one vendor versus six, 
that's a lot more, that's a lot easier to handle, not just from an admin perspective, but um, procurement people, let's not forget about them either. They have a tough job. Um, But in addition to that, right, you know, we also realize that while we would love for people to have a completely Juniper network, we know that's not reality. And so what we did is we said, look, we're going to go full stack sassy. We're going to provide everything that is sassy, but we're going to make it flexible. We're going to make it so that if a, if a customer has an SD-WAN vendor that they like already, and they just want to use some security services from us, they can do that. Uh-huh. Conversely, they've got a security vendor that they love and they want to implement our SD-WAN, they can do that too, right? We're going to, hmm. we're going to make it so they don't have to dive headfirst into the sassy, you know, architecture only with Juniper. It's a transition. It is not going to happen overnight. And the last thing we want is to force a customer, force an organization into additional change when they're not ready. So what we've done is we've made it, yes, we can provide everything, but we can do it in a way that's flexible, that allows organizations to leverage what they already have that's working for them, and then make that that sassy transformation at a pace that's best for them and their business. And I think that, that again, is part of a great experience. All right, well, we're coming up on the end of our time, but just one more question. Briefly, given all of the uh, vendor activity in the SASE marketplace, what should organizations be looking for when they're looking at a SASE provider and looking at this new architectural approach? That's a great question, Drew. And I think there are three primary things that organizations should be looking for. Number one, that it allows them to transition at their own pace. It supports hybrid environments because that's their reality. Number two, effective security, validated security effectiveness. At the end of the day, if you're buying security technology, whether it is legendary or it is this new cloud, you know, cloud delivered SSE, SASE architecture, it has to be effective at blocking, blocking attacks, right? Why would you, (laughs) why would you spend money on something that isn't? Um, And then the third one is again, on that transition, it's not forcing you into a change that you're not ready for right? It meets you where you are and takes you where do you want to go at a pace that's best for your business and your team. Those three are are, are really the primary, the primary. Yeah, this is this idea of being able to deploy technologies in a brownfield. Very exactly. few people get to, you know, wipe the slate clean and, you know, rock, do a switchover. Everything has to come in it gradually and progressively. And, and I think that's one of the things that Juniper has been able to deliver so far. All right. Well, if folks want to get more information about Juniper and Sassy, where should they go? Yeah, you guys can go to juniper.net slash Sassy. So again, that's juniper.net slash S-A-S-E. And you can learn more about what Sassy is and how what Juniper provides. Awesome. Well, we'll have that link in the show notes and others with additional information. Uh, That does wrap up our time. Thank you, Kate, for joining us. And thanks to Juniper for being a sponsor. Sponsors help us uh, do what we do here at Packet Pushers. Speaking of which, if you like what we do, there are many more fine free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.